This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for May 25th, 2018. In this week's episode, we've got an overview of how browser cookies work and if they pose any real threat to your internet security or privacy. Plus, there's a new Intel vulnerability, very similar to the last Intel vulnerability, and more could be possible. And the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, has taken effect. What is it, and how will it affect you? The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. Let's take a trip down memory lane. It wasn't long ago that we were talking about the Spectre and Meltdown vulnerabilities. Something to do with processors that had some protons in the wrong place or something. (laughs) And it turned out that they were hackable and that Intel had to issue some sort of software to patch it that would slow down computers. And, And when we talked about it some time ago, we said, okay, this is a problem. It's not too serious. It'll go away. But this week, it turns out that there is another Spectre-like vulnerability. What can you tell me about this, Josh? Right. This is being called Variant 4. So in in the original series of vulnerabilities, we had some Meltdown and Spectre, and these all have to do with something called speculative execution. And we had a whole episode about this. If you want to go back to um, to that episode, we'll have a link in the show notes so you can get to that more more easily. Essentially, what this is, is this is another variation on the speculative execution vulnerabilities. And Intel and Google and Microsoft have now disclosed this this new variation. And the, the biggest takeaway, I think, from this is just that, you know, th- this is something that is very similar to things that have already been disclosed. And so many of the mitigations that companies like Apple have already put into their products may already protect you from these vulnerabilities. What's interesting, though, is that more of these are coming out and it suggests that we may see others. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, when Spectre and Meltdown were first announced, one of the websites from from one of the, the research groups specifically said, we anticipate that we'll see more vulnerabilities like this. And so it's definitely not a surprise that, you know, we're, we have now seen another variant come to light and, uh, and there probably will be more. Generally speaking, as long as you keep your system up to date, especially when we're talking about Apple products, because Apple does patch the operating system to the degree possible to mitigate against these kind of attacks. And they also essentially in- include firmware updates um, which is as close to the to the physical hardware as you can get. You know, Apple devices are going to stay pretty well protected, and it's not quite as big of a concern as it might be if you're running a PC and you've got maybe uh, a BIOS that has to be flashed and that may not necessarily be something that happens automatically on your system. I can't remember an Apple firmware update in recent years. I think the last one was a tiny firmware update for the Magic Keyboard. When was the last time you remember a firmware update for, for an actual computer? Well, it's it's a good question. And Apple's official response on that, I actually specifically reached out to Apple to ask about Meltdown Inspector, whether Apple was going to release firmware updates for Macs. 
And their response was, well, we roll firmware updates into macOS now, so you won't be getting a separate update. If we do patch the firmware, then that'll just be included in the latest version of macOS. Is that possible? Because a firmware update is a bit more complex. You have to download something. It has to get sent to a chip, say, on the motherboard or the logic board or on, on a peripheral, and then the computer has to restart. Is that why some Apple updates have your Mac restarting more than once now? Yeah, that is, is actually one reason why an, uh, a Mac OS update might cause your computer to restart a couple of times. If it's installing new firmware, that's definitely a reason why, why you could have an extra reboot in there. Okay, I didn't realize that because they don't really talk about there being firmware updates in the security updates anymore. They don't specify that part of the update is hardware and part of the update is just software. Right. Okay, so for now, there's not too much to worry about this variant 4. Until variant 5 comes around, we'll let you know. <laughs> In other news, you've been getting a lot of emails, haven't you, Josh? Oh, oh you mean about GDPR? Yeah, GDPR, GDPR. Everything is all about GDPR. So Yeah. <laughs> so just the other day, I made a list. Of, just the other morning, I made a list of the email subjects that I got. Okay. Is it goodbye? Please don't let this be goodbye. This is your last chance. Urgent. Your approval is needed to keep receiving and... Those were four emails I got a couple days ago in the morning, all of them saying GDPR, you have to click through if you want to continue receiving emails from this company. Now, I've gotten dozens of these and I was talking with someone yesterday and we were both saying, you know, we get all these emails and I don't even remember signing up for emails from some of these companies. And, you know, in my case, I'm often signing up for information about software because I'm writing about software. And, and so that's not surprising. But actually what surprised me more is how few I've gotten. I've gotten dozens, but with all of the emails that I get from various companies and all the companies where I have accounts online, I would have expected to be getting hundreds of these. So we're getting all these emails. What, what exactly is GDPR? Why, why do we need to be concerned about this? GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation. It is taking effect on today, actually, the day this podcast is released, May 25, 2018. And it is a European Union framework for handling data that belongs to consumers and users. Now, you're not in Europe. I am. So when you get one of these emails, you think, well, why are they sending this to me if this is a European thing? There are two things going on. On the one hand, uh, this, is, this is something that was organized in Europe several years ago to give people more rights over their data, the right to correct it, the right to delete it, the right to know what a company knows about you to know how your data is used, what a company does with your data. And if a company that works around the world has customers in the US, in Europe, in South America, in Africa, they have two options. One is they could apply these new regulations only to people in Europe, and they'd have to make sure that they know that these people in Europe, sometimes if a company just has an email address, they can't know exactly where you are. They may have your IP address from when you signed up, but still, that's not 100%. You might have been in an airport when you did it. The other option is companies who are applying this across the board around the world saying, okay, this is eventually going to roll over in the States and other countries. It's best to just apply this to everyone because people are just going to start asking for it no matter what. Facebook has changed all of their privacy policy. Apple has done so too. It kind of makes sense for them to do this for everyone rather than just isolated people because the problem is that if they do anything wrong, the fine can be up to 20 million euros or 4% of global turnover. 
Now, let's see, Apple, how much turnover, not profits, how much turnover did they have last quarter? They had 60 billion in profits with a 40, 35% profit margin. Let's say 200 billion in turnover last quarter. So 800 billion in turnover a year. 4% of 800 billion. Of course, it's limited at 20 million. But the point being that that's a lot of money. That really is. Now, of course, this is something that as a consumer, even somebody who's not in the EU, it's something that can benefit us when those companies do change their privacy policy to to improve it for everyone across the board. It makes a lot more sense, I think, for, for companies, not only um, just because, yes, you know, regulations like these might take effect in other countries eventually, but as well for a PR perspective, I mean, that's a good thing. You want companies to be, cons or at least to pretend like they're concerned about your privacy and be doing things to, um, you know, to give you better options like this. Yeah, it, it's very good PR. Again, the big companies have realized that this is essential and a lot of the smaller companies as well. Now, surprisingly, Instapaper, do you use Instapaper? No, I don't. It, it's what's called a read later service. And you see an article on the web, but you don't have time to read it. So you click a share button and you save it to Instapaper. And then you can go back and you can read all the articles that you saw when you were on your morning commute when you get to work at your cubicle and you don't want to start working. <laughs> Instapaper announced that they were temporarily suspending their service in Europe because of GDPR. And they announced this, well, on the 23rd, saying that as of the 24th, access would be temporarily unavailable for residents in Europe as we continue to make changes in the light of GDPR, which goes into effect on May 25th. They had two years to prepare for this. Instapaper is a relatively large company. They were originally created by developer Marco Arment in 2008, who was also involved in Tumblr initially. Marco now makes a podcast app called Overcast. He sold Instapaper. It was bought by someone, and then it was bought by Pinterest in 2016, which is a relatively large company. So it's really surprising that a company that size would have punted on this until literally the last minute. It does seem strange, doesn't it? And, you know, it's funny because there are so many different companies that are doing these kind of silly dances right now because of GDPR. There's a company that has a piece of JavaScript code that you can embed in your site that will supposedly, you know, block anyone from the EU from accessing your site. So you can just keep all those nasty EU people out of your, your website, just, just so you don't have to worry about GDPR. I mean, th that's, that's just crazy. That's pretty radical. You'd want to cut out 200 some odd million people from visiting your website. <laughs> um, and, and, okay, if you sell shoes and you only sell them in the States, maybe you don't care about Europeans because they're not going to be paying for shipping and, and, and customs duties to get shoes in Europe. But if you're selling a digital service that you can sell around the world, then obviously you, you don't want to block those people. Well, we're, we're, not, we're definitely not going to hear the end of this. I mean, this, this is going to go on for a while. And I think what's important to note is that the start date of this is May 25, but no company is going to be fined on May 25th or May 26th or May 31st. There is certainly going to be grace periods it, this isn't Y2K. The date rolls over and all of a sudden, you know, something is going to change. This is more of a soft thing. If a company shows that they've been trying to, to deal with this, then I think they don't have to worry about it. Apple, as part of GDPR, introduced an interesting feature option recently. You can request a copy of the data that they hold for your Apple ID. 
I'll link to an article on Mac Rumors that explains how to do this. You get a number of data categories and you check the ones you want to find out about or you check select all. And this includes things like App Store, iTunes Store, and online store, retail store activity, game center activity, but also some of your cloud data, your bookmarks, calendars, contacts, notes, and some other types of data. You can also ask to download all of the iCloud Drive files and documents that are in iCloud, all of your email that's in iCloud, and all the photos in iCloud. Interestingly, you can ask to download the music that's in your iCloud music library. I went through this process a couple days ago, and they said it takes up to seven days. So I don't know what there's going to be. When you request this, you have to choose the maximum file size that if it's more than a gigabyte, they'll split it into files and you choose maybe one, two, five gigabytes. I don't remember what it was. I guess if you're downloading photos, then you'd have a lot of data. But I only picked the the top section you'll see in the article I linked to. There's a screenshot, which is just the data itself, not any you know files and documents and things like that. So for now, I don't know exactly what this is going to say or how big it's going to be, but I think it's interesting that this is part of GDPR. The companies have to let you request your data. According to the article, as of right now, this is available specifically to customers in the EU, Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway, Switzerland. And then Apple says that it's going to be rolling out worldwide over the coming months, whatever that means exactly for, for others. And what do those countries have in common? What does the European Union, Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway, and Switzerland have in common? They are all in the EEA, or the European Economic Area, which is a separate organization of people. It's not the European Union, which because there's no political part, but they still have things like freedom of movement, etc. So Apple is freely applying this to countries who aren't in the EU immediately because they're considering that EEA countries are more or less the same. And, and that's kind of interesting of them to do that. One of the things that I don't see on this list is I don't see a way to export your iCloud passwords. Well, no, you wouldn't want to. How would they, they could send it to you in an encrypted disk image, but they would have to be able to apply your Apple ID password, which they don't know. Is that correct? Yeah, they, they, they don't really have a good way to give you just a blob with your passwords in it. If, if they gave you a blob that you couldn't read, that wouldn't do you any good. So I, I guess they don't really have a good way for you to export your passwords from their service. Well, I guess as far as security is concerned, they, you don't want them sending your passwords in any way. Certainly not in any kind of plain text way. That would be very bad. <laughs> okay, I'm getting a bit hungry. I think I want to take a break for a few minutes and go get some cookies. Because when we come back for the break, we're going to talk about browser cookies. School's out, and your kids will have more time than ever to spend on their favorite activities. And if those activities mean spending more unsupervised time online, you might want to consider using controls to manage your kids' computer access. And of course, Intego has you covered. You may be familiar with some of the basic parental controls offered by Apple, but Intego takes your control of security much further than that. At the Intego.com website, we've got side-by-side -side comparisons of Apple's built-in security and the advanced features of Intego Content Barrier. Content Barrier is a suite of software that gives you more complete parental controls for peace of mind. And now, through the end of June, you can purchase Content Barrier Secure X9 at 40% off. It's a great way to start protecting yourself and your children from harmful online content. 
and guarding your children's online activities is crucial when you can't always be there to protect them. With Content Barrier Secure X9, you will be. Save 40% on Intego Content Barrier Secure X9 now through the end of June and have a real safe summer. So, Josh, I know it's very early in the morning for you. You don't eat cookies at 6 in the morning, do you? No, not. I don't make a habit of that, no. Not very healthy. My, my son might, though. I've got a, a 12-year-old who eats entirely too much sugar. Okay, well, that's a topic for a different podcast. <laughs> T- today, we want to talk about browser cookies. They're not sweet. They're not crunchy. You don't see them, but you know that they're there. You go to these websites, and they have these little pop-ups that ask for cookie consent, and you have to approve that they're putting cookies on your computer or your iPhone or your iPad. You're seeing more of these pop-ups now, by the way, because of GDPR, because it introduces new consent regulations for even if you just visit a website, they have to ask consent. And cookies have been around for a long time. People talk about them, but I don't think people know exactly what they are. Can you explain, Josh, what is a cookie? Sure. Well, and if you say chocolate chip, then I will hang up this conversation and get a new (laughs) co-host. No, I won't make that joke. I think we've made enough cookie jokes already. So we have. Yeah. When it comes to a web browser, a cookie is really nothing more than just a tiny little bit of text that has some information about a website that you've visited. And your browser just stores that text in a, in a little cookies database or cookies file. And what, what that does is so that when you revisit a site that you've already visited, that site will be able to know that, for example, that you're the same person who just logged in a few minutes ago. You're still logged in because you've got the same cookie that's identifying you uniquely. To that site. And this cookie is specific to the device or the computer that you've logged in on. So if you log into a site on a Mac and then later on your iPhone, you won't have that same cookie, right? Correct. Yeah, th- that's that's the idea. <laughs> it's it's Cookies are something that you don't normally want to have shared between multiple devices. There have been some interesting hacks that utilize cookies in the past. A number of years ago, there was an attack called Fire Sheep. There, it was actually a Firefox extension. And what it essentially allowed people to do was to go to an internet cafe with this browser extension loaded. And, um, you know, they'd just be able to log into that person's Yahoo account or that person's Facebook account. Because it, back in those days, most of the time you did not have an HTTPS connection all the time to the sites that you were visiting. Usually the login page would have HTTPS and companies kind of thought, ah, that's good enough. Now we can redirect them back to HTTP with no encryption. It doesn't matter anymore. They've already put in their password, right? Well, the problem was that those cookies uh, were kind of floating over the over the airwaves, you know, on, on these open Wi-Fi networks and coffee shops and so forth. And it made it possible for anybody who was on that same network to just grab that cookie, inject it into, into their own browser, and now they were logged in as you. So that's a little a little bit of his, interesting history. Wow. <laughs> okay. I never heard about that. That's, that's, that's pretty malicious. It's actually quite simplistic because a cookie is nothing more than, well, there's a link in the show notes to an article I wrote for the Intego Mac Security blog. And in, in a screenshot, I show the contents of some cookies in Firefox. And, and they're just 
a bunch of basic characters. And one of the examples is on the Apple website, there's a language cookie and it says E-N-U-S. So it says that my browser wants U.S. English for the interface because the interface is available in many languages. Some of them, however, are just seemingly random numbers. So the only thing that a cookie does is create a unique identifier for you. Is that correct? Yeah, that's basically it. Again, it's just it's just a, a string of text. Um, so, sometimes it has to do with settings that you've chosen for a particular website. Sometimes it, it's, it's login data like we've talked about. But cookies can do a number of other interesting things too. And this is where we get into kind of the privacy conversation and why people are kind of scared of cookies. Right. So to start with, cookies aren't inherently bad. As you said, they can record some of your settings. They can record information about you. I think a good example is you go to a certain website and you choose to make the font larger or smaller, or maybe there are, are three different types of interface. You can choose a light, a dark, and a hot purple or something. And that sort of thing is stored in a cookie, but that doesn't really have any personal information. It's not tied to you. And it's not anything that if someone intercepted it, anyone could exploit. But on the other hand, there are cookies that are more specific that are linked somehow to your, let's say, your account on a website like Apple or Amazon. And these are the types of cookies that would be hijacked in the example that you mentioned earlier. And then there are cookies that are used for tracking and advertising, like security cameras watching you all around the web. Yeah, it is a bit like that. And to be fair, I mean, cookies are really not the biggest concern that we should have anymore. It's kind of it's one of those things that's sort of gotten a bad rap because, again, many years ago, cookies were kind of the way that advertisers would track you across the Web. You would have third party cookies, meaning that if a Web page, let's say, for example, they had uh, Google Analytics or something like that, a, a JavaScript pulled from a Google server but embedded into your web page would be able to to track you when you went from site to site. You know, it sounds really bad. It sounds like, oh my gosh, well, that means that in that particular case, Google can track me at any website that I go to that happens to have this Google Analytics code. And if you're very concerned about your privacy, then that that is probably a, a, at least a somewhat legitimate concern. Multiple sites could be having these third-party cookies that can now track you across multiple sites. It, 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 cookies went from something that was just specific to that one particular site that you were going to, to now they can track you across the web. And, and one example of this is if you view something, say, on Amazon or buy something on Amazon, Let's say you buy a toilet seat on Amazon and then you go visiting various websites and you start seeing all these ads for toilet seats as if Amazon thinks you're a toilet seat collector. Uh huh. This is because there is a third party cookie that's saying, well, hey, this guy was interested in toilet seats and now he's on this other website. Maybe we can remind him that we've got more toilet seats in different colors and sizes. You know, most of the time when I'm doing my web browsing, I use a private browsing tab. And, and all of the major browsers have this. Safari has, has this option, Chrome, Firefox. You can open a special window that's treated separately from the rest of your browsing session. So for example, if all you want to do is visit a site that you don't need to log into, you don't really have any particular reason for them to track you or anything like that, you just want to you know, load a web page to read the latest news or something like that. You can open a private browsing window to do that. And what'll happen is during that private browsing session, 
any web pages you go to, they might be able to track you from one site to another. But as soon as you close that private browsing window and all other private browsing windows in that same browser, that's an important point, then those sites will not be able to identify that you're the same person who went to all those other sites anymore. Right, because what the browser does is it deletes all the cookies, it deletes the history, any other data that a website has saved on your device. Right, and so that's really the simplest way to avoid getting tracked across the web through cookies, especially, because those cookies will just get cleaned out as soon as you close all of your private browsing windows. But this is like hunting for mosquitoes with a bazooka, isn't it? It's a real hassle. You have to keep logging into every website. If you use two-factor authentication, you need to log in again to any website that uses it. That's true. Yeah. It, private browsing is, is again, something that I think is better suited for w when you don't need to log into sites. If you do need to log into a site, if, if you're checking your email or something, usually you would do that in a normal browsing tab. And then if you just needed to do some Google searches or, you know, DuckDuckGo or whatever you happen to use as your search engine, if you're trying to do searches on, especially if it's on a topic where you don't really want to see a bunch of ads on that topic, it's probably better to just open up a private browsing window to start that whole search and, you know, click through to websites session. It's actually an interesting way to see how advertising companies have a profile about you. If you use an ad blocker, turn it off. Browse on some websites. Newspaper sites are a good example because they get a lot of ads and these ads are going to be personalized. It's going to be for toilet seats. It's going to be for, you know, for me, it'll be cat food. I've got two cats. And so I buy cat food regularly. Then go into a private browsing session. Again, ad blocker off. Go to the same sites and look at the generic ads that you get served when they're no longer working with a profile that they have built up through this tracking. It's very different and it can be surprising. One of the things that always kind of surprises me when when I'm not actively using private browsing windows is um, I like to read comic books. And so Comixology is a, is a site that I go to, to, you know, to download comic books. And sometimes I'll just go to, uh, you know, some page that happens to have a Comixology ad embedded at the bottom. And curiously, it's got, you know, several comics that, that are very similar to ones that I've recently downloaded or, <laughs> or ones that I have in my wish list. Or, or the latest ones in a series that you regularly download, right? Yeah, and, it's, and, and this is one of those examples of a site definitely, you know, tracking you from site to site because there's no possible way that they could know that those are the particular comics that I would be interested in unless there was some kind of tracking going on there. So I'll also link to an article where I discuss private browsing in Safari and other web browsers. As far as cookies are concerned... Another thing you can do and that I like to do occasionally is just delete all my cookies. So in Safari, you go to Safari Preferences Privacy, click Manage Website Data, and then you just click Delete All. You can't delete individual cookies in Safari anymore. You can with Firefox. You cannot do it with Chrome. But every once in a while, it's interesting to just wipe them all. When you look at all the cookies in your browser, you'll be surprised how many domains you don't recognize that you've never been to because many of them are domains that are serving content on a web page that doesn't belong to that web page. So just as an example, you go to the New York Times and then there are ads on the page and those ads are served by various domains. And any website you go to can have content, say graphics, that's coming from another website. So it's, it's time consuming if you do that because you have to log into everything again. If you do have specific settings like text size or, or a currency, for instance, 
you'll have to reset that. But on the other hand, it does wipe clean your browsing profile. You know, it, really, there's no harm, though, in going and cleaning out all your cookies. The worst that's going to happen, really, is that, you know, sites that you go to will lose some particular settings if they were specific to that browser and not to your account. And it'll log you out of your accounts. I mean, that's really the worst that can happen by clearing out your cookies and, and your browsing history. I, I think we should just explain one thing that might not be clear, that the cookie is not saving your username and password. It's not something that someone could intercept on your computer to be able to log in as you. However, if you were to leave your computer unprotected, unlocked, someone could come up and go to a website where you have logged in and they would still be logged in as you. But the cookie itself doesn't contain your password. It contains a session ID that corresponds to something that's stored on the server, which confirms that you've logged in with a certain username and password. However, and again, this is a much trickier attack, but... It is possible if someone can walk up to your computer and they can edit your cookies. So uh, that would be probably more specifically in Firefox. There might be a way that you could do this in, in Chrome as well to actually copy that session cookie. And now they can paste it on their computer. That would be another way of doing that fire sheep attack. It would be more difficult. They'd actually have to have physical access and sit down in front of your computer to do that. But it's, it's one of the reasons why you should probably leave your screen locked when you walk away from your computer. Yes, we did an episode where we talked about physical access and Tom Cruise, and I'll link to it in the show notes. In the meantime, I don't know about you, but I am getting a lot hungrier. So I think we're going to call this an episode. Let's find some good cookie recipes for next week. Okay, stay secure, Josh. <laughs> All right, stay secure, Kirk. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Your comments and questions are welcome. Please feel free to send email correspondence to podcast at intego.com. We may use your question on a future episode. Links to topics and information Kirk and Josh mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where you'll find details on the full line of award-winning Intego security and utility software, intego.com. <laughs>